You're listening to KHOL, and this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director, Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, bears are waking up and residents need to beef up their trash cans. There was an instance here in Teton County where a bear tore into part of a building to to get to what was secured trash, but it literally walked down an apartment hallway, essentially. And later, it's hard to say what happens to us when we die, but some folks are already making plans that involve a new technology. Space age has been brought up from people who've witnessed this. Uh, The the equipment looks rather... uh, Futuristic. Coming up, you'll hear the details of a new type of cremation that uses water instead of fire. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Tyler Pratt. First up today, it's now legal, again, to get an abortion in Wyoming. I say this because just a few days ago, it was illegal. For only a few days, a Teton County judge has stepped in to block a new ban, but the battle isn't over. KHOL's Hannah Mersbach brings us up to speed on the latest saga surrounding reproductive rights in the state. Let's step back to the beginning of March. That's when the GOP-led legislature passed the Life is a Human Right Act to ban almost all abortions and make it a felony to provide one. But the bill sat on Governor Mark Gordon's desk for weeks. Before he made any move, Democratic state rep Mike Yin said he was probably evaluating its constitutionality. Many of us in the legislature as well realize that it'll be challenged almost immediately. And Yin was right. The Republican governor ended up letting the law pass without his signature, saying he expected legal challenges. And there were. A group of abortion supporters immediately asked the courts for a temporary hold on the ban. I'm going to fight for my patient's rights and for the ability to provide the care to my patients that I was trained to provide. Dr. Jovanina Anthony is one of only two abortion providers in the state and one of the plaintiffs on the case. The judge ruled in her favor. Anthony says Wyoming is trapped in a, quote, never-ending cycle where conservative lawmakers pass abortion bans only to have them halted by the courts. This is the second time it's happened. She says she sees no end in sight. If we have to do this go-around again and again, then we're going to do it. Not everyone thinks it should be in the courts. Wyoming Right to Life leader Marty Halverson says she's disappointed there was a lawsuit. I think the best way to go about this is to honor the action of the legislature. So for now... Abortion is still legal in Wyoming until the judge takes further action. Some, including the governor, say they'd rather put it before Wyoming voters and make a ban a constitutional amendment. But there's more. Another ban is looming. Governor Gordon signed a law that blocks abortion pills. Wyoming is now the first state to specifically outlaw using medications to end pregnancy. That law will go into effect in July. And reproductive rights supporters say they plan to try and stop it as well. Hannah Mersbach, K-12 News. Another controversial bill impacting women's rights is also slated to go into effect this summer. Transgender girls will not be allowed to compete in scholastic female sports. 
The ACLU, LGBTQ plus advocates, and the governor have all agreed they expect there to be a legal challenge. Now, amid a flurry of legislation aimed at trans youth this year, the new sports law was the only bill to pass. But local allies say it's been a painful couple of months for some in the community. Here's seventh grader Jack Carter Gatz. A lot of my friends, they've just been just kind of exhausted because this is just stupid. We've been fighting this for so long. And just to see something like that get passed is just frustrating and just, you know, just a little bit of just sadness. The KHOL Newsroom will continue to cover developments surrounding women's rights, and we'd like to hear from you. Have you or your loved ones been impacted by these new laws? What are your views on the actions of state lawmakers? Drop us a line at news at jhcr.org. That's news at jhcr.org. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. I'm Tyler Pratt. The first grizzlies have been spotted in both Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone. So it's just a matter of time before local Ursidae all around the region begin waking up from their winter slumber. And some Jackson and Teton County homeowners need to get bear-resistant trash cans really soon to help reduce human and bear conflicts. And a new ordinance goes into effect April 1st. So to better understand the rules and all things bears, I sat down with Cole Stewart with Bearwise Jackson Hole. And we began our conversation talking about what does bear season look like? You know, I would say it really depends on the year. I think lots of times, like a lot of the conflict really starts to occur later in the season. Um, Actually, like in the fall when on, let's say, a drought year when you might have like a berry crop failure or something like that. And so bears, when they're hitting that hyperphagia phase, are going to be looking for food really actively before hibernation. So that's when the majority of the conflicts occur. But there are a number of conflicts that occur every year in the spring. Uh, For black bears and grizzly bears, uh, when they come out of hibernation, obviously they're really hungry. They haven't been eating for a few months, so they're looking for whatever available food sources they have. Often on a winter like this, there's probably going to be a lot of winter kill. So elk, deer, bison, and things like that on the landscape that those bears are going to be utilizing. But as more and more bears come out, if there are unsecured attractants, those are valuable food sources for them that we don't want them to get into. So they will utilize those things if they're available. Why was this ordinance rolled out now? Has it been in effect for a while? Why why, why this year? On average, Teton County has 71 human-bear conflicts per year, which is no small number. And that number's rising. So as you could imagine, like over the years, Bear-Wise Jackson Hole was formed in 2004. Over that time, bear conflicts has just continued to rise year after year. And on years when there's a significant drought or things like that, or a berry crop failure, like I mentioned, or a lot of unsecured attractants like garbage, for example, those conflicts can just skyrocket. And I want to um, ask a dumb question here real quick. Yeah. What's a bear conflict? That's actually a great question. And I get asked it a lot. A bear conflict isn't necessarily like just seeing a bear walk through your neighborhood. Sometimes bears will just travel through the neighborhoods from going from one berry patch to the next berry patch and they're going on the straightest distance they can get. Uh, but really a bear conflict is as if a bear, um, let's say, gets into your trash, gets into any of your property, destroys some property, 
or also like any sort of aggressive behavior towards humans or or livestock or anything like that. Who's impacted by this new ordinance? It looks like a bear conflict zone has been created. So if you're listening from and you're a resident of town of Jackson, there's the bear conflict zone, which is primarily kind of on the on the fringe of town. Uh, so the areas around Snow King, the southern portions of town, and some of the areas like on the eastern side of town. If you can imagine like the areas that are really close to the forest boundary where bears could be easily coming off of the coming off the forest and down into town. Uh, those are generally the areas included within the bear conflict zone. Um, I would say to the listeners, like if you wanted to see if your address is within the bear conflict zone, you can either go to the town of Jackson website and just literally just Google bear conflict zone town of Jackson and, and you will find the map. Or you can go to uh, the Bearwise Jackson Hole website and it is also available there. How do you get a bear resistant trash can? The town of Jackson ordinance it goes into effect on April 1st, but outside of the town of Jackson within Teton County, everyone is already required to have a bear resistant trash can. And some of those areas are, are newly included within the, uh, it's called the wildlife feeding land development regulation. So it's important to note that it's not just people within the town of Jackson, but it's also everyone outside the town of Jackson within Teton County that is required to have a bear, not just a bear resistant trash can, but if instead you're in a multifamily housing situation, uh, those areas are required to have bear resistant dumpsters or enclosures around those that prevent bears from accessing them. Does my trash hauler provide that or do I have to buy it on Amazon? Okay. Uh, so back to your, back to your next question. <laughs> um, there's a number of options. So the tricky thing about um, Jackson or Teton County in general is that there are four different trash haulers and it's all a privately operated uh, industry, I guess, for lack of a better word around here. Um, so in a lot of areas, there's more of a franchise situation where the t or the town, for example, completely picks up all of the trash. And that situation is really easy. Uh, so but in our situation, uh, all of the trash haulers have a little bit different strategy for approaching this problem. So the number one thing I tell people is you should, number one, contact your trash hauler. That's the best thing to do because, for one, they're going to need to know that you're getting a trash can one way or another so they can pick up the old ones. So that way you don't have two trash cans sitting there right next to each other. It kind of defeats the purpose. If they are unable to supply you with a trash can, uh, you can go to Ace Hardware. They only carry a limited number, but you can get one on order and usually their delay time is only like a week or something like that. Or there's another nonprofit within Jackson that's called JH Bear Solutions. They're supplying trash cans that are IGPC certified and you can go and get one there and you may be able to get it at a discounted price. That leads to my next question. Are these expensive? They are. They are really. Um, and therein lies some of the problem with getting these things out in the community. So. A regular trash can, you know, the run of the mill that you're going to see in like all over the Midwest where they don't have bear problems is probably 100 to $150. A bear resistant trash can, we're really talking about for, you know, your standard trash can, a 95 gallon one, probably about 350 minimum. Yikes. Yeah. So it's pretty expensive. It's, it's, it's no small thing. And, and, you know, in Jackson, Jackson's not a cheap place to live. So I do recognize that that's a difficult thing. 
So that's why I think approaching people like JH Bear Solutions can be an effective approach. So it's my understanding that making trash cans bear resistant helps keep both residents and bears safe. You're correct. As most people probably know, maybe some don't, uh, bears, as they access um, human food sources, let's say your trash, for example, your compost or your chicken coop or things like that, that's an easy food source for them. So they will continually get into that um, and they will get bolder and bolder in, in general. And this often leads to aggressive situations where a bear may charge a person for trying to withhold their trash that day or, or, or other attractants, or, or they may damage property. There was an instance uh, here in Teton County where a bear literally tore into part of a building to, mm-hmm. to get to sec- what was secured trash. But it literally walked like down an apartment hallway essentially to get to that. It was an outdoor hallway, but a very uh, confined area. So you'll start to see these bolder and bolder behaviors that bears will exhibit once they start to get habituated to humans and also used to eating their trash. So what ultimately this usually results in, they'll either relocate the bears, which is really not very effective. Most bears just go right back to where... Hmm where they were getting into trouble, or they'll euthanize the bear if it's a human safety concern. Oh, that's so sad. And the trash can also make the bears sick. Is that my understanding? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, bears are pretty tough creatures. Uh, (laughs) Like, I think they're, they're, you you know, you have the, they can eat about anything and pass it through. But as you can imagine, like, there's a number of things that are probably poisonous to bears that we all put in our trash that we don't want wildlife into. So this is something that also I just learned, tell me if this is correct, that nothing is bear-proof. Is that correct? You're correct. Okay. Yeah. I would say not all bear-resistant containers are created equal. But that being said, like any of these bear-resistant containers, bears are smart. They're smart <laughs> animals. And and they will they will try and try until they succeed. So really the key factor is, is yes, use bear-resistant containers. But also, we want to limit the amount of time that they have available to use those things. So even your bear-resistant trash can, like you shouldn't be leaving that outside. You should bring that into your garage or some secured environment at night so bears aren't continually testing those every night. Because eventually, they will fail, especially when you, you, know, when you try to stand those things up to a 300-plus-pound grizzly bear. Like That's a lot of power and force on, on those plastic trash cans. Just to pivot away from trash cans for a second, it's not just trash residents need to take care of. They will, bears will catch the scent of many household items and stuff. So people need to sort of around this time lock up or protect other items in their house or? Yeah, you know, I think the the primary focus has really been on trash cans, but um, in general, the regulations, there's regulations within the town and the county that also apply to other attractants. So if you have... Oh, a chicken coop, a compost bin, uh, basically anything that's got a smell to it is going to be pretty attractive to a bear. Uh, that can be your toiletries. It can be, um, it can be as simple as uh, some lawn fertilizers and things like that. That bears will smell that. They'll think it's food and they'll get into it. Finally, Cole, if I see a bear, what should I do? Oh, that's that's a tricky one. You know, there's a little bit of nuance to that because. Just seeing a bear does not warrant calling game and fish because 
we live in Teton County. Teton County is 97% public lands. A lot of these areas are almost all of the area for that matter, besides like literally uh, the, the main population centers are occupied by grizzly and black bears. So if you see a bear on forest, like obviously there's no reason to call uh, Wyoming Game and Fish. But that being said, if you see a bear moving through town or a very populated area, it's a really great idea to call Wyoming Game and Fish Department. They have a stop poaching hotline. That's what I would look up and call that line. That would take you directly to their dispatch. So then they could get whoever is available on that situation right away. But in general, you just want to call Wyoming Game and Fish when there's a conflict, aside from situations when you see a bear in town. Cole Stewart with Bearwise Jackson Hole talking about rules around getting bear-resistant outdoor trash cans. And soon, Jackson has a new ordinance going into effect April 1st. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to say what happens to our souls after we die. But it's a little more straightforward to know what happens to our bodies. Some people now have a new option that's seen as more environmentally friendly. From KUNC, Alex Hager reports on a Mountain West funeral home offering a technology that uses water instead of fire. Carlotta Striffler isn't scared to talk about death, even her own. I think what I would have really liked if it had been years ago, it would have been to be taken up on a mountaintop and put on top of of a platform and just kind of go back to the elements that way. But they don't let you do that anymore. (laughs) When she was a kid, Striffler's dad was a minister, so she spent a lot of time around funerals. Now that she's 73, she says that makes it easier to talk about what should happen after she's gone. I'm a Virgo, and so I like to plan things. And I feel much less anxious about dying eventually, knowing that I have this in place. By this, Striffler means plans for a new form of cremation. We're standing in front of the machine that will carry out a process called alkaline hydrolysis, breaking down the body using mostly water. Chris Goes is the owner and director of Goes Funeral Home in Fort Collins, Colorado. Space age has been brought up from people who have witnessed this. Uh, The the equipment looks rather uh, futuristic. It's a giant metal cylinder, a shiny silver tube about the length of a small car and standing taller than everyone in the room. It's topped with valves and gauges and pipes. Everything that you would expect to see on a trip to Mars. Goes and another funeral director open the machine, unsealing a circular metal door that looks like the outside of a bank vault. I'll pull on three. Ready, one, two, three. Inside, there's a metal cage where overhead sprinklers rain down over the person's body and a chemical called potassium hydroxide. Then it's tipped to an angle. So there's water filling in in the lower end as it's up and then just bathes the person and reduces our body to our bones. That process could take anywhere from 3 to 14 hours. 
Ren Sherling, the other funeral director, likens the process to a more familiar appliance. It's really no louder than a dishwasher at home, and it's so, so, so quiet. And after it's done, the funeral home gives families two things. A little glass jar of water from the process. Some people use it to water a garden or a tree. And once the bones are dried out and processed, ashy remains, similar to the kind you'd get from traditional flame cremation. That was appealing to Lee Christian, who chose water cremation for his father, Ed, who died at 90 earlier this year. So we received a few keepsake amounts, but... Of cremated remains. Of remains, and then... We have my father's park ranger hat and his remains are inside. Christian chose it even though it's pricier than flame cremation. At Go's funeral home, the water-based option is $3,200, a thousand more than the old way. It's only in 15 states so far, including Utah, Nevada, and California. And of all cremations in 2021, fewer than 1% were water cremation. But still, Barbara Chemis, head of the Cremation Association of North America, says it's providing a valuable option for people who want it. Perhaps it's more quickly adopted in Colorado because I see Western states, Colorado included, um, being very interested in new forms of disposition and uh, perhaps leading uh, the rest of the country on environmental conscious, you know, death care choices. That's one of the big reasons that Carlotta Striffler chose water cremation. She liked the idea of a machine with fewer emissions into the atmosphere. And water, she said, sounds more soothing than flames. It isn't a frightening-looking piece of equipment to me. And by the time she's ready for it, Striffler says she won't be looking at it anyway. I'm Alex Hager in Fort Collins, Colorado. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. A group that strives to help local workplaces be more inclusive toward people with disabilities is closing its doors. For the past five years, Cultivatability has provided disability training to employers, such as the Town of Jackson and Teton County Library. KHUL's Hannah Mersbach spoke to the group's executive director, Cedar Rose Davis, ahead of the shutdown. Our mission um, has really been centered around disability inclusion in the workplace and around building education and awareness. So we never did job placement, but we did training for whole workforces. And in the last six months, we had been shifting that a bit to be just disability inclusion, period, because it felt like it was a natural shift for us and that disability inclusion is so important beyond just the workplace. So you recently announced uh, the nonprofit is closing its doors at the end of March. I imagine this is a really difficult decision. What what led to it? It is really difficult. The first thing is that it's like sad for everyone involved, staff, board, everyone who has participated. And it was not a decision that we made lightly. It was something that the board took very seriously. And at the end of the day, it really came down to money. Uh, For us, we just couldn't find a sustainable funding source that that fit. And that's no one's fault at the end of the day. We were a small nonprofit. And I mentioned this many times in sort of our outreach that it felt like the perfect storm. You know, we were transitioning a lot of our work during COVID. That was really difficult, but we we made it out of that. We had been trying these different funding sources and, and that just felt like nothing was quite kind of sticking 
we're in the middle of maybe not quite a recession, but people thinking we might be headed that way. So that definitely impacts everyone, especially nonprofits and especially smaller, those smaller nonprofits that have that less than half a million dollar a year budget. At the end of the day, it definitely did us in. Jackson is known for having so many nonprofits. Did it feel like there was just like a lot of competition for those limited resources? You know, it's interesting that you asked that because there are a lot of nonprofits here, but I don't like to get into the idea of competition around those nonprofits because it feels like it's playing into this idea of pieces of the pie. And I've never really liked that feeling. I like collaborating with other nonprofits. I like building us up. And so I don't feel like it was because of competition from other nonprofits. Of course, there's limited resources to go around. So it makes sense a little bit. But it's not, you know, because of a different nonprofit that like we didn't make it through. It's because, you know, our mission didn't resonate enough with the funders and donors. And that's that's no one's fault. You know, that's just how it is. With all that said, I do, in the space that I've been in, in the world of human services, I've been really fortunate to get to know the other nonprofits in the human service industry while I have been at the helm of CultivateAbility. And I know that human services in particular are so needed in this community and many of them struggle. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to come here and see this beautiful, beautiful place and not think about all the people that make it this way. We we all want to conserve what we love here, the the beauty, the environment, the animals. And I think sometimes the people that are struggling, it's hard for us to see that behind that really beautiful facade. So that to me is is a story itself as well, that the human services really need more attention here. I mean, I'm wondering why you said that what it came down to is your mission didn't resonate enough with those those funders. What? Why do you think that is? We were working in a space of we're human services, but we're really working on social justice and really working on systems change. And that can be hard for people to understand as a tangible thing. So I guess that would be the way that I say that maybe people couldn't resonate as much with what we were doing. And again, there's many reasons. We were a younger nonprofit. We still didn't have our legs beneath us. There are a lot of nonprofits here that are doing fabulous work. But I think at the end of the day, when you're trying to do systemic change and you can't just say, hey, if you give me X amount of dollars, I can deliver X amount of food to people in need. That's a very tangible thing and it needs to be done. Um, I'm not saying our work didn't need to be done or doesn't continue to need to be done, uh, but I think it was hard for people to wrap their heads around what the work was. What we wanted at the end of the day was for people to create more welcoming spaces for people with disabilities and understand that everyone has a place and everyone should have a chance and have opportunities to succeed and grow and thrive. Cedar Rose Davis, the leader of CultivateAbility, talking about why the organization is shuttering after five years in the community. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band, Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL, Jackson Hole Community Radio. Community Radio.